Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud as we wait to see when we might move to level three of lockdown and which of us will be moving since there seems to be some notion of regional differentiation. We have with us on the show uh, this evening someone who used to chair it, who used to sit in my very chair, and that is Peter Bruce. Welcome, Peter. Um, Hi, from nice coming back. to us from Stanford. Um, also joining us, uh, Isaiah Mklanga, thank you very much, from Alexander Forbes, and Lukanu Mianda, the editor of Business Day. Um, Peter, you've had some fairly strong things to say about the irrationality of the lockdown. Um, do you think level three is going to be terribly much better than level four? Well, I'm living in the Cape, so we don't know whether we're going to get to level four, three at all. So, you know, this is a, this is a theoretical discussion for me. Um, but, um, look, some of the stuff has been irrational. You know, the only, the only thing that you can possibly explain some of these, um, uh, particularly the retail rules, is by understanding that what they're trying to do is to stop is to is to not encourage you to go shopping basically so they want to keep movement to a minimum um which is why if you do want to go and buy a t-shirt because you know it's got billabong written on it or something like that that's not a good enough excuse and it'll have a bit of red tape across it in the store um however you know whether that stops the spread of COVID or not is is an open question we heard yesterday that despite all of the preparations that the government has made, we've been in lockdown now for a long time. Um, and, you know, we were told that, that, the, that the lockdown was there to enable the government to prepare for what was going to be a surge by around September. Um, we're now told, despite all of that, uh, this happened last night when I think William Kieser um, uh, introduced some more science into the debate and m more modelling or modelling for the first time that they expect um, you know ICU beds in the country to be completely overwhelmed by by June um, and you sort of wonder well what have we been what have we been doing all this time I mean you know have we what I don't know is whether we're saving lives or not I mean would more people be sick if if, if there was no lockdown what or does this thing just have a life of its own um, in the, in, on, you know, in the Cape uh, townships, you can see around Cape Town, it's particularly in Kailicha, the way it's spread despite lockdown, probably maybe even because of lockdown. So I, I don't, the points of all I'm trying to get to is that I don't know where I stand any longer. I don't know what the right thing to do is. I've got some real sympathy for the government. Um, uh, but I do know that you know, unless they unless they do make if they if they're able to say as they did last night that fifty thousand people are going to die because of this forty eight fifty thousand, um, are they saying that if they lock if they if they ease up and go to level three and level two early that more people than that will die or is just that is that the worst case number as it was presented yesterday fifty thousand is the worst case number of deaths between now and November. And it strikes to me, and it's been the case all along with this, uh, the progress of this disease in South Africa, to be a vast overestimation. And um, I'd, be, I'd be really upset to think, I think, you know, um, that, uh, you know, the government is going to run our lives based on an exaggerated um, um, vision like that. 
I think one of the things that we that we raised in the Sunday Times this past weekend was the transparency or otherwise of the modeling. And as I am as, as an economist who does a lot of modeling in, in your own field, does it worry you that we actually know so little of the sort of assumptions and the basis on which all these health models are being constructed? Because, you know, lives and the economy really hangs on it, doesn't it, Isaiah? Look, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's correct to characterize that way. But uh, what, we, what we know in economic modeling is uh, you know, assumptions play a big role. Uh, and I'm saying this without being a, a healthcare uh, expert. I'm, I'm an economist who understands at least the impact on the economy how, and how the economy works. But I think it's, it's, it's fair to say we just don't know a lot currently. And it's not only in South Africa, it's, it's globally. Uh, it's, a, it's an impending pandemic which is still evolving. There will be a lot of mistakes that are being made. And to make policy in real time, it's very difficult. Uh, it, it can be well for us who are sitting on the sidelines without having to make policy that have a, a, a direct impact on people's lives to say this decision should have been made uh, relative to that decision. But we can only know uh, after the fact to say that decision was right or wrong. Um, to, to make policy in, in, real, in real time is, is very difficult. So we have to be a little bit sensitive as far as uh, that is concerned. Look, Kanyo, is the policy that's being made, in your view, being made sensibly? I mean, just to reiterate what Isaiah has said, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult choice that you have to make as government. Does anybody else make decisions, especially when you're looking at models? I mean, I mean no model is perfect. I think not, while, not long ago, people were saying uh, half a million deaths in the UK, for example. I mean, it's still quite a huge number. What they've got now is about around about thirty thousand, and 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 that's when they're actually opening up the economy now with those levels. And we are like possibly opening up at the beginning, or you know, like they might they may have picked in terms of their growth where they are at thirty thousand. We might be starting. We only like at a couple of hundred, and then we are opening. So these are decisions that are hard ones that that, that have to be made. You know. Look, in this day and age, everybody can go on Facebook or Twitter and be a specialist. <laughs> so it makes things a bit difficult. And, and there's a lot of inform misinformation going out there. But, but, but I, I can appreciate that if you're like Minister Mkisa or President Ramaphosa and having to make these decisions that, that may kill or not kill people, then there is a difficult situation you are in. Well, it kills people either way, Shirley. I mean, uh, Rob Rose, you've, you've, you've got a very colourful uh, cover story on the Financial Mail this week showing the sort of companies falling over like, like nine pins. I mean, crashing, going into business rescue. I mean, the, the economic cost and the cost to employment and businesses of this lockdown and of the pandemic. Um, just tell us a little bit about what you've covered in your financial mail uh, cover story. You're muted, Rob. Sorry, we, uh, we looked at some of the dynamics of the various companies that led to what happened to them, and we looked at the wider situation of business rescue and in the country, um, and the fact that you know we expected to see a surge in business rescue and liquidations pretty soon. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the consensus view of all the people we spoke to is that the, the policymakers don't understand, they don't understand the impact on the economy um, as acutely as they should. And I think that the comments from Ibrahim Patel last week certainly illustrate that. 
that you know he called the figures thumbsuck and you know your obvious question then is well what are your figures and i think the probable answer is they didn't have economic figures like they should have had um, and considering that the economic consequence of this was going to always to be immense they should have definitely done some more economic modeling to get a sense of what this will mean because you know some companies in the in say the tourism sector the aviation sector they're not going to recover anytime soon it's it's going to be permanent job losses Azai, what are your I mean, uh, figures? Look, uh, from, from an economic point of view, I think uh, if, if you talk to, to the guys at SARS that have a need to collect tax revenues, they will tell you exactly which companies are experiencing problems. So I would imagine across all of government, they would have a better understanding to say this is the sectors that are, that are experiencing uh, problems because simply they're no longer paying a corporate income tax to the same level as they used to be. So that may have informed uh, the credit uh, guarantee schemes uh, that was put together by Treasury in conjunction with uh, the SAB and the, and the Reserve Bank, I mean, and the commercial banks, but also it, it, it would have informed uh, the, the Reserve Bank to easy the liquidity conditions for banks to on lend to, to corporate. So I am uh, comfortable with that understanding. I think it's, mer it's a matter of maybe the coverage of those instruments as far as uh, all the corporates that are uh, in distress is not enough. Um, we, can, we can talk the extent of the coverage rather than to say um, perhaps government has, has no clue as far as the economy um, is impacted by this COVID-19. And remember, we do have lessons that we are learning from other countries that experienced this uh, much earlier than we did. Um, I think the, the question of uh, a large number of people that are going to uh, lose jobs, that is a given. Government does not have enough fiscal space to continue to support companies indefinitely. So the real question is how long this is going to last and whether government will have enough uh, fiscal space to continue to, 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 to support. And we know from the fiscal numbers, government is quite limited in, in that respect. I want to come back to that one. But Peter Bruce, um, what are your biggest concerns? I mean, in, in your view, does government have no clue about the e impact on the economy? No, I think it, I, I think it does. I think the Treasury does. But, but as Rob was saying, you know, um, uh, Brian Patel was saying, was, was calling numbers thumbsucks. Um, but he has got real numbers available to him from the Treasury, but he's not reading them, um, which speaks to, you know, different ideological or different political paths that uh, the people around the president are taking. Um, uh, 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 Patel just simply wouldn't hold the Treasury in any kind of regard in, these, in this matter. And he's not going to listen to their numbers. Lucanio, how much of a concern is that? The, the divides within, as it were, within government in terms of, never mind between government and business, but within government about who's taking which numbers seriously. No, so Hillary, it's a, minister, it's a minister major concern. I think, like, as Rob was saying, like, when you have these policies, life-changing for the country, like, you know, like, permanent damage possibly in terms of jobs, and also in terms of health, you know, like the numbers are out there. People, for example, not accessing antiretroviral drugs because of the lockdown. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's all immense. And if there, if there hasn't been proper modeling to start with, and also not even proper consensus within government. I mean, I mean, I mean you've had like, two big high-profile examples where the finance minister 
talked about how, for example, he opposed the, the, the decision on cigarettes and boost, and how that, that actually causes cost of fiscal so much money. That, that, that is the one thing. And, and of course, there was a second issue where he also programmed so the issue of PEE and, uh, and, and relief. So if, if, so if government cannot actually decide on these things among themselves, and yet then they're supposed to then make policy for the rest of society, and also make society the policy that society builds into and supports, I mean, it's quite difficult. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we seem to know what's going on, just looking at what's happening. I mean, just to open a newspaper any day, there's a company falling over. You know, you know, and, and that means like, less money for the fiscus and less money for, you know, for basically to feed people out there. And Peter Bruce, South African Airways, a particular favorite of yours. It's an absolute soap opera that's been unfolding this past week or two. I mean, what is your take on this? What is the fallout from this kind of soap opera that's well, going on you know it is a soap opera it is a, it is a soap opera and and as we know most operas are in three parts and we don't know what part we're in you know are we are we in act two or three um but i want to read you something if i may just for a moment from act one um on the 2nd of october 2008 when um uh, uh, i think news 24 reports the following South African Airways lost 13.74 billion rand between 2000 and 2008, according to Minister of Public Enterprises, Alec Irwin. In answer to a parliamentary question, Irwin stated that this figure excluded restructuring costs of 1.3 billion and 137 million paid on loans raised with financial institutions. In his reply, Irwin also disclosed that since 2004, the government has pumped 9.2 billion into the troubled national carrier and provided a further 2.9 in guarantees. As of March 31, 2008, SAA had total debts of 17.7 billion and 5.4 billion in the bank. So that's over 10 years, that's 22 years ago. And it hasn't got any better. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had, I, I went and printed out a lot of statements yesterday because I'm going to write about it later this afternoon. Um, and they all, have, all say the same thing, one minister after the other. We will not let it fail. So, you know, it's a strategic asset, et cetera, et cetera. Right up until, right up until the last couple of months where Pravin Gordon, having sworn his life that he would save SAA, says there's nothing more to be done about this and says to the um, business rescue practitioners, there's no, more, there's no more money, which hasn't stopped him, nonetheless, coming back with another proposition. Uh, which is not SAA itself. It might be called something else. Um, uh, and, you know, where he's going to find the money for that, because I haven't found anybody, anybody who's going to give it to him, um, where he finds the money to start an airline or to save the one, the bits of the, you know, SAA that are still moving is anybody's guess. Rob Rose, would you invest in a new airline started up by Pravin Gordon? Not just me, I don't think anyone would. Warren Buffett's busy selling his airline stocks, so I think that nobody in their right minds would at this moment. Um, but, you know, I, I found the, the dispute in Parliament last week between Proven Gordon and the business rescue practitioners fascinating. Um, because, I mean, Proven Gordon was furious at the fact that the business rescue practitioners want to wind down the company. And I think it goes to the misconception of business rescue. Um, he believed that, that the plan was to save this airline. And I think the business rescue, rescue practitioners are looking at statements like Peter just read and realizing that for a long time, the airline has been unsustainable. So I don't know how you can save it. Um, and I think that's exactly the issue that the new airline will face too. It's 
the business model is broken for airlines in general, but particularly broken for the way South Africa has won a national airline. So I think, you know, we could try and put in place another airline. I mean, certainly the Swiss did it, um, but it would have to be an entirely different model. It can't be the way SA has done things in the past. Isaiah, it feels like SAA is not the only one now, which, which the state is sort of rather desperately starting to say. We had the Treasury saying we're going to save the land bank at all costs. Um, we've got AXA sort of potentially bringing out the begging bowl. What's going to happen to all these state-owned entities? It's difficult to, to, to say what, what will happen. Uh, it's mostly uh, political decisions rather than economic decisions. If you were just to look at the economics, uh, the fiscus is very constrained. Uh, it doesn't have much space to continue to support SOEs that continue to, to misspend money and lose billions and billions year in, year out. When we have significant needs for, for funding for things that really matter a lot for society, Yes, I understand in terms of jobs and, and, and uh, you know, the jobs that they, they create. But if a sector or if an SOE is not adding much to society, perhaps those jobs could be created in another different sector. And we can have those people migrate or other people be employed in those sectors. But where it stands currently, it seems we are in a political deadlock. Not, it's not necessarily an economic discussion because from the economics, it's quite clear globally airlines are failing. But as far as the land bank is concerned, uh, I think it's a very important institution. Uh, it, it does lend uh, north of 160 billion rand into the agricultural sector. Um, the issue is not necessarily its capital, it's liquidity, which government needs to inject and, and, and solve uh, very fast. Otherwise, in terms of its profitability uh, over the uh, past couple of years, it has been okay. Even when you look at capital adequacy ratios, it's in line with other commercial banks. Um, um, so there is no problem there. It's just a liquidity problem, which has been induced because of a credit rating downgrades, uh, but also because of a few lenders that have pulled up money. But if it's not solved, it has a potential to spill over into other SOEs and therefore impacting on their ability to raise money in the future from the capital markets. Look, Hanyo, is it's not just the land bank or SAA or, or the airports company. I mean, what kind of resolution would you like to see to this sort of ongoing problem of the SOEs bringing out requests for funding? And we haven't even heard from ESCOM yet. Um, just at the time when, when there really is no money to accommodate them. I mean, there's, I'm not even sure there's even, is there even any further potential to guarantee their debt? Never mind actually give them cash. No, it was actually quite Interesting to listen to Peter. That Peter, you said the soap opera has three acts, but he, but it seems to me we're still on act one. So I was still waiting for you to go into act two and act three. Well, give him <laughs> no. another so, chance so, so, to so, tell so, us act two so, and act three. So, and that's so, even act, act four. In 22 years. So, 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 so it sounds a bit odd that to think like this editor here is going to have a solution or anything remotely intelligent to say. If people, if, if, if nobody has come up with a solution since like the late 90s. So, so, so as I quick word I say, like I actually don't know. Like as, as I said, I mean, these decisions are not basically made on business principles or even on economic principles, because SAA should have been closed years ago, but, it's, but it still hasn't been. Instead, we're talking about opening a new one. And then when you, we, we talk about the fiscal situation, I mean, two months ago, before, before COVID, we were saying then about how we could not afford to put a single cent in any of these SOEs. 
you know, just before we got the downgrade, and the downgrade was going to come, and then after the downgrade came, then it was Moody's and everyone else came, so there's no money. And now suddenly this week, Land Bank wants to need $2 billion, AXA wants $11 billion, Praveen wants to uh, open a new airline. I, mean, <laughs> I wish I had an answer, but I really don't. <laughs> Rob, what does this do to the sort of whole, I mean, we're surely going to need a lot of business rescue. I, is, there any, is there any sort of issue about, about what this does to business rescue practitioners or to the whole process of business rescue? Because we've already got, we've got Come, we've got Edcon. Um, is this something well, that... Come, come has come out of business rescue, yeah? Is, has right. Come come out of, well... <laughs> Is in, but 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 it's got some hope that, that they think it can survive afterwards. Because it's got good and, assets. And and, and and is it is it was it going into business rescue a slightly more cynical exercise, perhaps to lose some jobs or or to or to trim its sales a little bit, and come out to saying, well, terribly sorry, you know, it's unavoidable. Um, that's interesting. I wonder whether that will happen a lot in the private sector. Actually, Rob, yeah, Rob, Rob, just tell us your sense of it, because surely there's quite a lot of logic to going into business rescue instead of trying to wait, wait it out. I mean, is there a logic to doing that? Will we see, yeah, sure. as Peter says, I mean, more companies doing that? Certainly with Comair, I mean, you're looking at a company that has to freeze itself for a couple of months before it can actually start doing business properly. So you want protection from creditors to some extent, to say, look, we're just going to completely put ourselves on hold for five months, and we'll continue doing business um, again in startup in November, you know, October, November. And I think that that's, it could be a cynical exercise for some companies, but I think the airlines, you have zero business coming in, and you could lift the lock lockdown to level one tomorrow, you won't help the airlines immediately, it'll take months. Um, I mean, as for business rescue, I think that there are a lot of, there's a lot of skills that we need in terms of running companies, which which business rescue practitioners don't necessarily have. There are a few of them who tend to get most of the appointments, for example. So I think there's going to be, like you say, a big rush for business rescue practitioners, and perhaps we can repurpose the thousands of journalists who are using their jobs and make more business rescue practitioners. <laughs> Is this a job you would want? As I am, Flanga, I'm going to move on to the, the... We have the Monetary Policy Committee meeting at the Reserve Bank this week. Actually, we're meeting on Microsoft Teams, I think, rather than at the bank itself. Um, what are you expecting and what do you think the Reserve Bank is going to tell us about its growth forecast? As far as the economic forecasts are concerned, I doubt there will be significant revisions. There will be marginal revisions on economic growth because since the last MPC, which was an emergency one in April, we don't have a, a lot of new data that came uh, that came out of, let's say, simply because it can't do the surveys. Uh, but, but also, if you look from, from an inflation point of view, the weekly surveys, which, let's say, did on a limited uh, uh, you know, a sample of, of products, does show that we are moving into deflation, uh, at least uh, as far as essential goods and services are concerned, which would uh, say perhaps we may see some marginal revisions on an, on an inflation side, but um, I wouldn't expect the sub to move because a lot of the policy moves they made, the 200 basis, uh, 225 basis points cumulatively and reducing uh, capital uh, adequacy ratios for banks, they are yet to filter into the economy. They haven't actually assessed to see what is the economy. So if you combine the two little revisions because we don't have new data, plus the impact of the policy decision they have made a year to date, they are not yet filtering into the economy. It makes no sense to say more rate cuts currently or more policy levers currently, simply because we also don't know how long 
uh, the, the pandemic is going to be and how long the, the, the impact on the economy is going to be. And as a result, you may need to wait and assess the, the actual impact on the economy before you make a move. Sure, so, so, so no interest rate cut. That could be a bit of a disappointment. Lucanio, I think you, had, you were writing the other day about how there was near unanimity on, on another interest rate cut. Is, is it going to go down like a sort of lead balloon, as it were, if there is no cut? That's one of the things I was going to ask, Isaiah. I suppose, Isaiah, one of the issues here, we've spoken a lot about the lack of fiscal space. We've discussed that quite substantially here. So everybody has been looking at the Reserve Bank as basically the only thing left. So like, the, the, so maybe, on, say, even if on an economic grounds, on, on normal, how we assess policy decisions, do, do, do those actually do, 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 do those rules actually apply in today's world? I mean, Isaiah, I'm going to give you half a minute to answer that one because we're running out of time. Quick answer. The Reserve Bank does not have enough policy tools to target the people the fiscals can. It's the people that are unemployed, people that are not leveraged, which means they don't have loans. So as a result, they don't get benefits to a large extent from interest rate cuts. What can help is national treasury because it has better targeting tools to actually say we're giving money to this segment of society which is not covered from a credit rate, a credit uh, perspective through the commercial banks. Okay, that's what we have time for this evening. As always, fascinating conversation. Thank you very much to all of the panelists. Please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud and stay safe.